You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. In John chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, the Apostle John, in opening up his gospel, sets out for us a few different themes which he would expound upon as he moved through the gospel. One of those themes that we'll cover and see expounded upon today in John chapter 2 is the theme from John chapter 1 verse 16 and 17 where Jesus says, From the fullness of Jesus we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, John wanted to make the point that Moses came bringing the law, and Moses came bringing one version of grace. However, the grace of Jesus far surpassed the grace found in Moses and the favor found in Moses. And what Moses brought was the law, and what Jesus brought was grace and truth. And today in John chapter 2, we see that particular truth typified in the very first miracle of Jesus, as well as in the first cleansing of the temple by Jesus. And so really in one sense, I would say it this way, Jesus brought us a new covenant. Let us appreciate it, number one, and then let us run in it, number two. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2 in John, he says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So the scene opens up very simply there in Cana in Galilee. Just a typical scene at that point in Israel. A wedding feast is happening and taking place. And this wedding would be something that would be perhaps a week-long affair. The family would provide a meal and a celebration for basically the entire town. It would be a wonderful gathering, a wonderful event. And it says there in verse 1 that on the third day there was this wedding. And all you have to do is go backwards in the text to the encounter of Jesus with Nathanael and Philip in chapter 1, verse 43 through 51. And you remember what Jesus said to Nathanael. He said, are you impressed that I told you that I saw you under the fig tree, greater things than these will you see. You'll see the angels of God ascending and descending upon me, the Son of Man. And so basically Jesus had told Nathaniel, you haven't seen nothing yet. And so when you get to John chapter 2, we discover Jesus' first miracle. Obviously, it's connected to the statement that he made to Nathaniel that you will see me do greater things than these. And so the setting is a wedding. And Jesus's mother was there. It's interesting that she's not named in the entire text. She's only referred to as the mother of Jesus, but her name, Mary, 
is not given in this text. And so Jesus' mother was there. And as you read this story, it's very possible that Mary was in some kind of catering position in the wedding uh, because she has authority to direct the servants. They respect her. They listen to her. They follow her lead. But nonetheless, we also have to notice in verse 2 that it says Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And what I want you to see there is simply, first of all, that Jesus got an invite to the wedding. <laughs> he wasn't a bummer. He wasn't like the Pharisees. He wasn't like the religious leaders of the day who were so difficult to be around. Jesus was able to be there with his disciples, with his family, with his mother, celebrating this wonderful occasion. And of course, in one sense, Jesus was endorsing the concept of marriage by attending and being present at and working his first miracle in the context of a wedding. It is God who had said, let a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And it was Jesus, the Son of God and God the Son, who quoted that passage from Genesis chapter 2 in speaking about marriage. He holds the same perspective as his father in that there's one man and one woman. They come together in holy matrimony until death do they part. Jesus endorsed marriage in that sense. Then in verse 3, a horrible thing takes place. Now to us, it doesn't seem that horrible. It just says, verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. But in that culture, which was a very shame-based culture, you wouldn't want to be embarrassed. You wouldn't want to fail in your obligations culturally. Hospitality was a huge priority. And so for them to run out of wine would have been a huge embarrassment. There's even evidence that possibly a lawsuit could have come from the bride's family against the groom as a result of this kind of catastrophe. So it was a big deal. The wine ran out during this wedding feast. And Jesus' mother Mary comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Now, of course, the big question here is, why did she come to Jesus? Was she at this point expecting for there to be a miracle? It says in verse 11 that this was the first of Jesus' signs. So personally, my opinion is that Mary had not yet witnessed the miraculous hand of her firstborn son. I know that there are apocryphal accounts that were written way after the life and ministry of Christ that tell us things like that Jesus as a little boy turned clay pigeons into living birds and stuff like that. But, but these are false assertions and extra biblical and not historical. And so personally, I don't think that Mary was anticipating a miracle at all. I think she was simply operating as she had become used to operate. I believe that she was just merely behaving like the single mother that she was. All indications are that Joseph had died at some point before the adult ministry of Jesus. And as the oldest son, Jesus was not only the carpenter's son, but he had taken as well, Mark chapter 6, verse 3, 
the responsibility of the carpenter. And more than likely, he had become the breadwinner for the family and had taken responsibility. And so when in a catastrophe like this, Mary does what she's been doing probably for years, running to her oldest son and leaning heavily upon him. And Jesus said to her something that at first glance sounds absolutely horrible or at the least very awkward. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. First of all, Jesus addresses her very abruptly. And he says, woman, he uses this title for her, woman, not mother. This is not a term of endearment. Uh, This is not a harsh word either. It's a polite expression, but there is some distance in it. In other words, there's a little bit of distancing from between Jesus and his mother when he refers to her as woman. It's kind of like in the South in America today, if a, if a child speaks to a woman and refers to her as ma'am, not his own mother, but someone he doesn't know and says, ma'am, there's respect, there's some endearment, but there's definitely uh, a gap between the two people. Some distance that's there. And then Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? Fascinating question. This distanced Jesus from Mary even further. Some have actually translated this question from Jesus as, what have I to do with you? Or what have you to do with me? Some have said that this should be better translated, woman, you have no claims on me. So we know whatever this phrase means, there's a further distancing between Jesus and his mother, from his mother. A slight rebuke and some distancing happening. And then Jesus introduces a theme that we'll see repeated throughout the gospel when he says, my hour has not yet come. This would be ultimately the hour of the cross, but Jesus now introduces that theme. Now, what would Mary's response be? To such a word. She looks at the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. And with that, we have the last recorded words of the mother of Jesus. And I think, of course, it's fascinating that she is pushing all attention away from herself and on to Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. Now, in verse 6, It says that there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. They would use these water jars in order to, in a ceremonial way, wash themselves before eating a meal and after eating a meal. These were the Jewish rites of purification, and each jar was huge, held 20 or 30 gallons. So between the six stone water jars, there could be between 120 and 180 gallons of water. And so let's just round it out and say 150 gallons of water in those six stone water pots. And Jesus said to the servants, verse 7, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. That's a notable phrase, up to the brim. I'll I'll reference it in a moment. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. 
So there would be sort of the master of the feast responsible for all of the festivities, responsible for the food and the drink. So they took it. When the master of the feast, who obviously knew nothing about the water pots and what was in his hand, when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This would be absolutely unheard of in that culture. There you are having a huge party, a great celebration. You're serving wine. It's a wonderful feast. And you would lead with the best wine. Then after people's senses were slightly dulled and they'd been there a while uh, and you had your sort of repeat customers, then you serve uh, the poorer wine. But here Jesus has done something that causes the master of the festivities to say, most people, that's what they do, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, verse 11, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, of course, this is a wonderful miracle. We see Jesus taking water, turning it into wine, and I'm sure there are many personal applications that we could glean from this, this wonderful miracle uh, from Jesus. The question that we would need to ask is, what does this mean? And there have been a lot of wild interpretations and, and meanings given to this particular miracle, but I think we need to remember two major things. The first thing we need to remember is the prologue. In the prologue, John introduced these wonderful themes. Jesus is the eternal Son of God and God the Son, the Word of God who makes God known. He's the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. He brought the new covenant. Uh, Moses brought the law. Jesus brought grace and truth. We've all received grace upon grace. These are themes that he's the light of the world. These are themes that John introduces at the beginning of this book. Secondly, we should also remember that all of these signs, John chapter 20, verse 31, are designed to show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So what about this particular miracle would reveal Jesus as the Christ and that we would have life in his name? And what about this miracle would point us back to John's introduction? Well, first of all, in John's introduction, chapter 1, verse 3, what does he say about Jesus? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, Jesus is the creator. And here, Jesus creates wine out of water. And so there's an indication here that Jesus is the creator of all things. Now, in the created order, water turns to wine all the time, which is a very slow process. But here, Jesus speeds up the process, showing that he is the Lord of the creation. But I think the bigger lesson, and probably the, the longer lesson to draw out, 
is simply that idea that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, that we've received grace instead of grace. That now, because of Jesus, there is this glorious thing called the new covenant, the new covenant. And in this little story, I mean, you see this illustrated. There are the Jewish purification jars filled to the brim with the water that Jesus commands. That water turns into wine. And the master says, you have kept the good wine until now. I mean, wouldn't we say that concerning the new covenant? Wouldn't we say that? Wouldn't we look at the law and look at the requirements of the law, the handwriting of requirements that was against us, as Paul said to the Colossian church? And then wouldn't we look at the new covenant, the grace of God, that we can be changed from the inside out? Wouldn't we look at all of that and say, God has saved the best the good wine, so to speak, until now. So in one sense, I think there's just a, a, a slight foreshadowing in the life of Jesus and by John, our author, looking at the future glory of the new covenant that Jesus Christ would introduce. And you see it in a few different ways in this story, in this miracle. I mean, for one, you think about Mary. What did she do? She came to Jesus as a mother. She came to Jesus as a family member and asserting that familial right, she said to him, they have no wine. She was expectant because she was his mother. And what does Jesus do? He proceeds to swiftly cut her off from that position. In other words, that position here today gets you nowhere. Perhaps in the past that position would do something, but right now that position gets you nowhere. And what would her response be? Well, her response was faith. She looked at the servants and instead of responding like a mother or like family, she responds like a believer and she says, do whatever he tells you. Perhaps I'm seeing too much in it, but it seems to me that that is a, a very strong illustration of the idea that uh, you know, Abraham is the father of faith. And the Jews at the time of Christ, they were assuming that the blessings of God would be poured out upon their lives strictly because they were family. And Jesus would teach them and tell them, and John the Baptist began to prepare them and say things to them like, I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. And Jesus said, you're not Abraham's children. If you were, you would, be, you would do the works that Abraham did. You would believe there would be faith. And so we understand that it's not that we are part of God's family. And then, you know, that's why we receive the blessings. No, we express our faith and trust in him. And we're saved and justified through that faith. And we become a part of the family of God. But you also, I think, in this little story, this little account of Jesus's miracle, we see the reality that the, or an allusion to the old covenant being fulfilled in Christ. You know, the old covenant had a fading glory. It says there in verse two that the, uh, or excuse me, it says there in verse three that when the wine ran out, and the old covenant was always going to run out. Now, I know that Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill. 
And people often wonder about that. And I've even heard some say, hey, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. Therefore, we should keep the festivals. We should keep the Sabbaths and all of that. But in Acts chapter 15, when Gentiles began to be saved, the early church did not even dream of putting that kind of requirement on the people. This is what the law is for. He's, Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 8 and 11, he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Jesus did not abolish, he fulfilled. And in fulfilling it, it is not passed down to the Gentile church. So what is the law for? Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8 through 11, that it is good for pronouncing someone as guilty. So is the law alive today? Yes. What for? To pronounce guilt. The law is great at pronouncing someone guilty. It is not great at pronouncing someone as innocent. That is what the new covenant is able to do. And we see an allusion to that in uh, this story that... that uh, it's been fulfilled in Christ. It ran out. He filled it to the brim. There was no more room for those ceremonial pots to be used for the things of Jewish procedures, but they were now used by Christ. Now, we better move along in our text today. We move on to verse 12, and it says that after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. There's a transition happening here from family to disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Okay, up to because of elevation. And in the temple, verse 14, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now this is fascinating. It's interesting on one hand because there are of course two different accounts of Jesus cleansing the temple. The synoptic gospels talk about Jesus cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry. This causes some people to say that John was taking that same account and just putting it in his record near the what appears to be the beginning of the life and ministry of Christ, mostly because these authors had a little bit of leeway. They didn't have to stick to a strict chronological approach, much like we would with our Western minds. Uh, however, I actually think that Jesus did this twice, that he cleansed the temple at the very beginning of his ministry, and that he cleansed the temple once again at the end of his ministry. And he goes to the Temple Mount, and what does he find? He finds people on the Temple Mount selling animals. These were uh, animals that would be offered as sacrifices. And this was actually a great convenience to all the pilgrims that would come and worship. They would travel from distant countries, and it would have been so much more difficult to have to bring your own ox, your own sheep, your own pigeons. It'd be so much more difficult to do that. So it was better to 
you know, sell your ox, take the money, go to Jerusalem and buy a new ox to be sacrificed uh, unto God. And the money changers were there as well uh, as people who, instead of, because you weren't allowed to give Gentile coinage, they would take your Gentile money from whatever country you were from and convert it into the temple shekel so that you could pay the temple tax. And in both of those cases, there was a racket involved, the religious leaders were involved, and people were making money hand over fist on the worship that was taking place. And I want you to notice, Jesus didn't simply rebuke their profiteering, he rebuked their presence. He says in verse 16, Take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. And when he said that, the disciples remembered Psalm 69, talking about the zeal of your house consuming me. They knew that that was about this man that they were watching and witnessing. And of course, it speaks to us concerning the importance of purity in worship. We live in a generation that's just so crazy to me in that we almost don't even notice or think it's strange to, on Sunday morning, go to church, lift our hands to God, have an emotional experience, cry out to God, worship Him, pray to His name, read His Word, study His Word, be in fellowship, and then perhaps that night go out and get drunk and have sex with our girlfriend or boyfriend and disobey the Lord. There is this dualistic uh, approach to serving and worshiping God. And Jesus looks at the people and says, this ought not be the case. God still looks for pure worship. So the Jews, in response to this, said to Jesus, What signs do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Herod had been remodeling the temple for 46 years up to that point had made it a beautiful structure. But Jesus, verse 21, was speaking about the temple of his own body. When they're asking for a sign, he refers to his death and resurrection. They think he's talking about the actual physical temple. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Quickly, I would just simply say this, that Jesus, as I told you in this passage, there's a hinge from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, and I think you see it. The Old Temple is pronounced dead on arrival, but the New Temple is pronounced as the temple that would conquer death and would actually give life. And that's what we have through the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, a new life in him. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, verse 23, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And so we're going to see this carried out through the rest of the Gospel of John, the willingness of people to follow Jesus for his miracles but not to follow him because he's the Messiah, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What a glorious Savior we have and what a new, wonderful new covenant.
we are standing in. God bless you. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.